so glad to have each and every one of you out tonight as we celebrate the death of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as a church, we are concluding today a 21-day Daniel fast. Amen. And we praise God for the strength that God has given us and for the hunger pains that we have experienced. Amen. And I pray that this time has been very fruitful for you on a number of different ways. You know, I would not call myself a sensitive person. And I don't call or consider myself to be a, a sensitive man. It takes a lot to make me weep. Uh, and I'm not boasting or bragging. I'm definitely not even saying that that's a good thing. But when I do experience tears, uh, it, it normally is because it's just something unimaginable uh, <laughs> or something that really has just thrown me off, uh, something that I, I just, I'm just left marveling over. Uh, it's not often that I cry. And tears is a good thing. God gave us tears for a reason. And for people who say that men should not cry, uh, they are, are people who, who really don't understand why God gave us tears, amen? Jesus wept, the Bible said. And Jesus was the manliest man that there ever was and that there ever will be. But you know, there is one song that I have tears coming to my eyes every time I hear it song. There is, is one song that makes me sensitive, and it's written by a man by the name of Stephen Curtis Chapman, who was born right here in Kentucky in the city of Paducah. And the words to this song that is entitled, Heaven is the Face of a Little Girl, goes like this. Heaven is the face of a little girl with dark brown eyes that disappear when she smiles. Heaven is the place where she calls my name and says, Daddy, please come play with me for a while. God, I know it's all of this and so much more, but, but God, you know that this is what I'm aching for. God, you know, I just can't see beyond the door. So right now, heaven is the sound of her breathing deep, lying on my chest, falling fast asleep while I sing. And, and heaven is the weight of her in my arms, being there to keep her safe from harm while she dreams. And God, I know that heaven is so much more. But God, you know that this is what I'm longing for. God, you know I just can't see behind this door. Every time I hear that song, I end up tearing up, or as I did today, once again, weeping. The reason why I am brought to tears is because of what 
brought about the writing of that song. Stephen Curtis Chapman is a, a, a celebrated Christian musician who has wrote, written many, many heartfelt, God-glorifying songs. A couple years ago, his five-year-old daughter was ran over in her driveway by an SUV that was being driven by his own son. The pain and the agony that he must have felt and the pain and the agony that he still feels as he recently completed this song is evident in this song. He's saying, Lord, I know that heaven is a lot more than the gift of my daughter, but God, I can't see past that right now. I just really want my daughter. And many of us, we have experienced losses. We have experienced the, the death of close ones. And we know that when we experience those times, that the, that the time that we had with that loved one comes back to our memory and we feel that, that heaven would be just to have them again. There's no delight in mourning the loss of a loved one. And that's why Isaiah chapter 53 baffles me. It's one of the most beautiful chapters in the scripture. It is a song in itself. It's four of one songs in the book of Isaiah that's known as the servant song, the last of the four songs. And, and, and going back to chapter 52, we, we read about God's son, the coming Messiah and the suffering that he is about to take, the bruises, the, the crushing that he is going to take when he dies. And starting back at verse 14 of chapter 52, it says that, that the coming Messiah, and Isaiah is talking in present tense, but he said he would be so marred that he would be, it would be beyond human semblance. That mankind would not even be able to look out upon him and see that he is one of them. Verse 3 says that he would be despised and rejected. That he would be a man of sorrows. That he would be acquainted with grief. That he would be despised once again. Verse 4 says that he will bear our griefs. He will carry our our sorrows. He will be stricken. He will be smitten. He will be afflicted. He will be crushed. He will be chastised. He will experience stripes. He will be oppressed and afflicted. He will be judged. Verse 8 says. He will feel cut off. Then in verse 10, something that just baffles me, which we will spend a short time on, says that he will be crushed. But look at what it says. It says, and yet it was the will of the Lord. And some translation says it, it pleased the Lord to crush him. It pleased the Lord to crush him? Feel the pain of Stephen Chapman in that song and in those lyrics. 
I feel the weight and the pain that was to come and that was put upon our Messiah. And then I read that it will please God the Father to crush his own son. Some people read this text and they say that they cannot believe in the Christian God because the Christian God is presented as scripture in scripture as a divine or a cosmic child abuser. Say, how can a loving God allow his son to die a death like he died and still be just? They question God's love for his own son. But you know, the interesting thing about man and the interesting thing about God is, is that there is such a big difference between the two. The mind of God compared to the mind of of man is like comparing the the mind of a, a human being to the mind of a goat with even more distinction. Who can know the mind of God? God told Job. God said, my thoughts are not like your thoughts, and my ways are are not like your ways. As far as the east is from the west is as far as my thoughts are from your thoughts. God's love is so divine that the the wisest people of, of this world cannot begin to tap into it, let alone his brain. Isaiah 53 and verse 10 through 11. It it shows us the gospel. It shows us a love that is incomparable and uncomprehensible. It it shows us the the death of God. But, But as we look at it, the first thing that we must notice and the first thing that we must pay attention is not just that verse, but the psalm of Scripture. God loves his son. And we ought to not question the love of God for his son because scripture testifies throughout of this divine love. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1. God says to Isaiah in another servant song, he says, Behold my servant whom I Uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights. And he's speaking to to Israel about the coming Messiah. And he says his servant, which we now know is Christ, he says, I delight in him. He says, behold, look at him. I am well pleased with him. And we know that that was a theme throughout the gospel. We know that at crucial points in Jesus' ministry that God once again declared his love. When Jesus was being baptized by John the Baptist, we hear God telling the world, telling us of his love. He says, this is my beloved, beloved son in whom I cherish and whom I am well pleased. hear these same words 
the Mount of Transfiguration. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, when, when Jesus took his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, up to that mount, and he had a, 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 a conversation or a prayer meeting with Moses and Elijah, and the Bible says that his outsides went in and his insides went out, and, and Peter and, and the rest of the guys are astonished as they see the glory of God, and we, we hear a voice from heaven that says, Behold! Once again, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But this time he adds something. He says, listen to him. We know that God loves his son, that he is not a cosmic or a divine child abuser. John testified of the same thing. That is John the Baptist in John 3.35. He says, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. We Look at this passage. We want to say, how does this work, Lord? How is it your will to crush your own son? How does this work, Lord? How... Are you pleased to crush him? But we, we must remember that from eternity's past to eternity's present to eternity's future that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit has, has been in a perfect and a divine love. So as we read this text, may we not read it and say that God did not love his son. For God loved his son. Thing that we need to look at and seeing how God could crush his own son. So we must look at the purpose for which he was crushed. The purpose for which he was crushed. And as we look at Isaiah chapter 53, the purpose is almost identified in every single verse. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was crushed for our iniquities. He was chastised for our peace. He was struck for our healing. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8, he was stricken for the transgressions of his people. There is no doubt, according to Isaiah chapter 53, why our Savior was crushed. He was crushed for our sins. Sin diminishes or insults the glory of God. Where sin is present and where sin is, is rampant, where, where sin is, is full, God is not there. The world was full of sin. The world was full of people and it is full of people who are totally depraved, who are sinners. And God allowed Christ to be crushed. 
in order that he may one day restore his glory and redeem his people. If sin is an insult against God, if sin diminishes the glory of God, if sin is an enemy of God, then God would be unjust and imperfect if he did not respond to sin. God, a perfect and, and, and holy and, and triune being, cannot be in the presence of sin. And if he allows sin to go forth in his presence, then that shows something about his character. Just like my mother, in a similar way, whenever we would have company of importance, and whenever we was getting ready to go into a restaurant, or we was getting ready to go into a store. She had a talk with me. And many of you know that talk. It's a talk when I was younger where she would put her hands on her knees. She would get her finger out. She would take whatever I was playing with in my hands. And she would say, you listen to me. When so-and-so comes over here, I don't want you to be out here acting a fool. I don't want you to interrupt us. I don't want you to be running around the house like you don't have any manners. I don't want to hear you whining and complaining. I don't want to see you jumping on this couch. You better act like you got some sense. And if not, when they leave, we're going to have the time of your life. And you know as a child how you listen to it but how sometimes you just got to try your mama. You know, you hear that three or four times, you say, oh, okay. But sooner or later, you got to say, what does the time of my life look like? <laughs> and there was a couple of times where I tried my mother, and each time she responded just as she promised. There was maybe one time I can remember what she did. She said, I'm, I'm too tired tonight. But she responded the next day. Because if she did not respond, that would be a direct reflection upon her values, upon her character. If she did not respond to my ignorance and to my blatant disrespect, that would mean that she really did not care about how I behaved. And ultimately, that doesn't just say she doesn't care about how I behave, but that says a lot about how she behaves. Theologian A.W. Pink said, he said, unresponsiveness to sin is a moral blemish. And he who does not hate sin is a moral leopard. How could he, who is the sum of all excellence, look with equal satisfaction upon virtue and vice, upon wisdom and folly? How could he, who is infinitely holy, disregard sin and refuse to manifest his strictness toward? How could he, who delights only in that which is pure and lovely, not loathe and hate that which is impure and vile. The wrath of God towards sin 
it must be poured out because he is a holy God. And if he ignores it, if he does nothing about it, it shows that there's something in him that says that it's okay. Philosophically, ultimately, we'll end with the conclusion that there's a part of him that delights in it. Looking at this question, we must see the love of God. We must see the love of God for Christ. We must see God's hatred towards sin. But we also must see that Jesus' sacrifice was a willing act. That he was not forced by his father to do it. But that he did it because he loves his father. And he loves his father's creation. Jesus was not forced to die. Jesus willingly gave up his life. Jesus was not brainwashed. A couple years ago, we remember the story of the D.C. sniper of John Muhammad and Lee Malvo, and, and Muhammad was a, a, a sharpshooter, and he took this little boy, and he brainwashed this little boy, and he had this little boy believing that the United States was his enemy, and that they had to, 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 to wipe out certain people, and they were shooting from the back of a car, people who were innocent and people who had nothing to do with them. And, and John Malvo, reporter, says that when he was interrogated by the police, he had no identity of his own, that, that all he could do was point, um, uh, a point to, to Mr. Muhammad, the one who had him to do the things. And some people who say that God does not love his son because he allowed his son to die. They, they fail to see that Jesus is fully God, that they are equal, that, that Jesus was not manipulated by his father, but that Jesus' love for his father and love for his father's creation caused him to humble himself in such a way. Philippians chapter 2 says, Verse 5, have this mind among yourself, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who thought he was, who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man, he being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. He made himself, he humbled himself, he gave himself. at Isaiah and we continue to read we see that God did not just delight it wasn't a, a delight of crushing his son for the sake of crushing his son we see something else verse 10 says yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him he has put him to grief when his soul makes an 
offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. The rest of this song here in Isaiah, it points to the true purpose of God's crushing. It wasn't a crushing just to crush. As we end this 21-day fast tomorrow morning, I am going to break open or crush the shell of an egg for breakfast. In my crushing this egg, my delighting in seeing this egg crush is not going to be in the fact that the egg is being bruised or crushed. The reason that I'm going to delight in this egg being crushed is because I know that this egg is about to bring something great, especially after 21 days. God, when he crushed his son, he didn't crush his son and find delight in crushing his son and make it his will because he just wanted to see his son get beat up. He got delight in crushing his son because he knew what it would bring. Because he foresaw what it would bring. And I don't have to tell you what it brought. It brought life for us. It brought peace for us. It brought freedom for us. It brought joy for us. It gave us a chance to know God and to be known by God. It gave us a chance to delight in the Lord and to worship the Lord. It gave us a chance to be brought from darkness into his marvelous light. It gave us a chance to have a hope that we never had. The Bible says that Jesus is our high priest, our Passover lamb on that night. He was laid in the tomb. He offered himself as a Passover lamb while the Jews were preparing a Passover lamb. They failed to see that he was the lamb. Before the foundation of the earth, Jesus was slain. John said when Jesus was coming to be baptized, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, while they were preparing for Passover, they failed to see that he was the lamb. While the high priest was getting the lamb ready, they failed to see that they were about to kill the lamb. And our high priest, he offered himself up. The Bible says that ultimately Christ, after his death, he went into the heaven where he took a seat at the right hand of God. These poor priests who were behind his murder, this, these poor priests who were behind his, his killing, these, these Pharisees and religious leaders who, who yelled crucify him out of jealousy and, and envy, they failed to see that they were putting more work upon themselves. The Jews every year would come together for Passover. And during this time, they would kill a, a lamb and, and make sacrifices. And, and the stench of, of dead flesh would fill the air. 
and the, the waters will be, be bleeding with the color red because of the blood that they were extracting to the river system. They failed to see that they were doing more work for themselves. And not only did they make yearly sacrifices, but they made seasonal sacrifices. There were certain seasons when they had specific uh, sacrifices that they had to make and, and the stench and the smell of death will fill the air along with the blood and the tabernacle will be full of people bringing their precious gifts. Not only was there yearly, not only was there seasonal, but there were weekly sacrifices being made. Each week on a Sabbath day, these priests would make sacrifices again and the, the stench of the flesh would fill the air and the blood would fill the river and the weight of the people was upon them as they brought these animals to be slewed. But not only was there yearly, seasonal, weekly, there were daily sacrifices as the priests would make sacrifices daily over and over and over again all day. And then on top of that, there were personal sacrifices where people would offer up personal sacrifices to the Lord depending upon the laws in which they had broken within a day. And the priests were so worn out. They would be working so hard in the tabernacle, there was not any seats available. When you go back and when you read the Old Testament, you will see that in the tabernacle that Moses made, there was no such thing as a seat. Because the priests were working all day long. Jesus became the Passover lamb. And when he rose and ascended into God, he became our great high priest. And he took a seat. And the reason why he took a seat is because he said on the cross, it is finished. I am the ultimate sacrifice. I am the ultimate Passover lamb. I am the ultimate high priest. You don't have to run to the priest. You don't have to run to anybody else. If you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Isaiah 53 should make us marvel at the love of God. Marvel at the love of God, that God loved us so much that he gave his only son, that God loved us so much that he allowed his son to be despised, rejected, to bear our sorrows, to, be dis to, be, to bear our griefs, to be carried away and, and stricken. He allowed his son to receive stripes on our behalf, the fact that God killed his son for us should make us not question his love for us. If God gave up his son, what else would he not give up for you? If God gave up the best gift that there was to give, why are we Worried and downcast about, about things that he has the power to control. 
If God gave us the, the best gift, why do we look to other gifts besides the gift that he gave for completion? If God gave us what is most precious to us through divine love, why do we seek love from people who aren't divine? This texture make us hear the words of the Apostle Paul who said, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or, or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. So the next time you feel like questioning the love of God, remember that he will not be separated for you because he gave up the best he had for you. He ransomed his son for us, broken people for us, prideful people for us, sometimes confused people for us, sometimes dirty mouth people for us, sometimes ungrateful people for us. Therefore, when we go through our trials, we should respond like James said. He said, rejoice in your suffering. Why in the world will we rejoice in our suffering? We can rejoice in our suffering because of the example of Christ. When God allows his children to suffer, it's not to break us. It's not to kill us. It's not out of hate. It's because he can see beyond the suffering. He can see what the suffering is going to produce. So while you feel like you're in your storm and there's no one there and as if God has forsaken you, remember that you can rejoice just as God. God delivered Christ from death. He can deliver you from your trial. Do not give up on God. He will never give up on you. Those whom the Father has given me, no man can pluck them out of my hand. Keep holding on. Keep your head up. Keep moving forward. Keep having faith. Keep trusting in God. Keep believing. Knowing that our suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. The next time you go through a season of rain, remember the season that Christ went through on your behalf. Don't give up on the Father. Yeah, you may feel like saying sometime, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? But I want you to hang up there because Christ hung in there. The next time you're going through a season of rain, I want you to remember that the trees don't grow without rain that there will be no rainbow without rain that there will be no health in your flowers without rain and you cannot appreciate the sun if there is never any rain
Stephen Chapman concluded his song with words, with words that sum it up best. He said, but in my mind's eyes, I can see a place where your glory fills every empty space. Where all the cancer is gone and every mouth is fed and there is no one left in the orphan's bed where every lonely heart finds their one true love. That's what Christ promised us, that he's coming back again. Let us pray. Father, as we celebrate your crushing, your delighting of your own son, may we, Father God, today celebrate with appreciation, celebrate while marveling at your love for us. May we walk out of here with our heads held high, knowing, Father God, that nothing can separate us from your love. That even our mishaps and our mistakes are set ups by you. That you work all things together for the good of those who love the Lord. That when you crush us, you crush us in order that you can get the fruit out of us. That you discipline us as your own children. That we are no longer orphans. That we belong to you. Be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name.